The Reign of King Charles II, Part 2. Now, the honeymoon period, when the king and his subjects competed only in paying compliments to each other, was finally over. There was widespread anger about the humiliation of Medway. Pepys called it a dreadful spectacle as ever in England saw and dishonor never to be wiped out. Parliament was openly critical of the king and preparing to attack his chief minister, the Earl of Clarendon. Clarendon had served the royal crown loyally ever since, as plain Edward Hyde, who had led the moderates against Pyme in the long parliament. He had been by the side of Charles II during his years of exile, and after the restoration, the king, who had no practical experience in English policies, appointed him as Lord Chancellor and relied on him to lead the royal government. Clarendon was mainly responsible for the mildness of the Restoration Settlement. As an old parliamentarian deeply attached to his institution, he made sure the King and Parliament were restored to more or less equal terms, although the tide of royalism was flowing so strongly that he might well have been able to give Charles II all the power that his father ever had. He was a hard-working, methodical administrator, not above making money out of his high office, but comparatively honest by the standards of the day. However, he had made many enemies. The nonconformists blamed him unfairly for the severe laws against them, the Clarendon Code, as they were called. Politicians commented enviously on his marriage to his, of his daughter Anne to the Duke of York, the heir to the throne, and on the great house he was building for himself near Piccadilly. Even Charles was tired of the pompous old man and probably not sorry to use him as a scapegoat. In August of 1667, he dismissed him from the chancellorship, and later that year, Clarendon fled to France to escape impeachment. He spent the rest of his life in exile, working on his History of the Great Rebellion, which is one of the finest pieces of historical writing in the English language. The Dutch War was at, its, was at last ended by the Peace of Breda in July of 1667. All that England gained from it was the New Netherlands, the Dutch colony in America, which divided the English settlements in north from those further south. Now the gap was closed, and the old Dutch capital, New Amsterdam, was renamed in honor of the king's brother, New York. The Dutch were not the only enemies England had been fighting. In the closing stages of the war, the Great Plague struck at London. It was the last violent outbreak of the epidemic from which England had been suffering since the Black Death and spread rapidly among a population that cared little about sanitation and personal cleanliness. Among the narrow streets and rat-infested alleys of London, the plague claimed at its height a thousand victims a day. Doctors, such as they were, could do little. At night, carts were wheeled through the streets, a melancholy cry of, Bring out your dead! And on the doors of houses where plague had struck, red crosses were painted, with the inscription, Lord have mercy on us. The king and his court, and all those who could afford to do so, left the stricken capital. Only Abermarl stayed at his post to keep order. Those who believed the plague was sent by God to punish a pleasure-loving nation seem to find proof of this in another calamity. In the first week of September, 1666, a fire broke out at a baker's shop in Pudding Lane, near the place where the monument now stands, was caught by a strong wind and for three days and nights burned its way remorselessly through the city. Pepys describes the poor people staying in their houses till the very fire touched them and then running into boats or clamoring from one of the pairs of stairs on the water side to another. At night he watched the fire spread in corners upon steeples, between churches and houses as far as you could see up the hill of the city, in a most horrified, malicious, bloody flame. The churches, houses, and all on fire and flaming at once. 
in a horrid noise that the flame made, the crackling of houses as their ruin. Charles went down to the city to help fight the fire and ordered houses to be blown up to make gaps across which the flames could not pass. But when at last the great fire burned itself out, most of the city, including St. Paul's Cathedral, lay in ruins. Rebuilding quickly started. The king ordered that all new buildings should be in brick or stone instead of in flammable wood. He appointed Christopher Wren as one of his surveyors to take charge of the rebuilding. Wren's magnificent plan for reconstructing the city with broad avenues and squares was never carried out because of the costs and conflicting interests. But he designed many of the new churches, including his masterpiece, St. Paul's, in which the several in which the severe classical style of Inigo Jones gave way to something much more high spirited and dramatic. After the fall of Clarendon, Charles was his own chief minister. Though he took advice from an ill-assorted group of in, whose initials formed the word cabal, Clifford, Ashley, Buckingham, Arlington, and Lauderdale. Only two of these were taken into confidence by Charles when he worked out his plans for a French alliance. In the face of it, there was nothing very remarkable about such an alliance. Charles admired France and its powerful King Louis XIV and hoped that with French help he would be able to defeat the Dutch Republic. This was agreed in a treaty signed at Dover in 1670. But there was a secret clause in which Charles bound himself to restore the, the Catholic faith in England with the aid of French troops and French money. Why he should have made such a promise when he cared little about religion and knew that he could not possibly carry through such a violent change is not all clear. He was certainly influenced by his sister Minette, a charming woman who was married to Louis XIV's brother. Charles was devoted to her, and since she came over to Dover in 1670 to sign the treaty, it may well have been her pleading that persuaded Charles to accept the secret clause. In March 1672, war was again declared against Holland. Two days before, Charles made some show of carrying out his secret agreement by issuing his second declaration of indulgence, suspending the penal laws against Roman Catholics and nonconformists. It was a gamble that depended on victory. Unfortunately for Charles, the war went badly. The Dutch Admiral de Reuter kept the English fleet at bay and the invading French armies were held when the Dutch, led by Charles's nephew, the young Prince William of Orange, cut the dikes and flooded the great areas. Charles postponed calling Parliament as long as he could, as long as he could afford to do without one. But on February 1673, he could wait no longer. The Commons were on the warpath. Elliot and Pyme were no longer alive to lead them, but the same forces were at work. Fear of Roman Catholics, distrust of absolutism, hatred of France, anger at corruption and waste of money. The division was growing between those who supported the king and his court and those who stood for the country, by which they meant Protestantism and parliamentary control. Charles recognized the danger and canceled the Declaration of Indulgence in March of 1673. But Parliament went on to pass the Test Act, by which all holders of public office were compelled to take the sacraments of the Church of England. It was a political measure aimed at the king's brother James, the Duke of York, who had been converted to Catholicism. James, the Lord Admiral, threw up his post rather than conform. So did Clifford, the Lord Treasurer. Clifford was succeeded by Sir Thomas Osborne, a Yorkshire landowner who was created the Earl of Danby. Over the next five years, Danby reversed Charles's policy of friendship with France. 
He knew the Parliament, which had already appointed auditors to examine the king's account after the failure of the Second Dutch War, would never accept a Roman Catholic foreign policy. He revived the court party in the House by bringing the war with Holland to an end and carefully distributing pensions and offices of profit amongst members of Parliament. The Cavalier Parliament, elected in 1661, was still sitting, although by-elections had brought many new faces into it. Danby was content to keep this long Parliament in being, since it gave him time to get to know members and to bind them to the crown. The closed circle of the court was deliberately expanded and golden bonds between crown and commons, which had snapped at James I's reign, were carefully reforged. Danby, accepting the fact that the commons were divided, gave the king's supporter not only the major share of the profits of the government, but also a policy, a policy of which they could approve. Instead of fighting the Dutch, he allied with them and his policy was crowned by the marriage of James's daughter Mary to William of Orange. In these years of peace, trade flourished. Revenue from customs and other taxes went up, and for heaven's sakes, Charles found to his astonishment that his income was at last beginning to equal his expenditures. Well, at least for a short time, and we'll find out in our last episode what happens. Now, the source for this, History of England by Thornton, Lockyer, and Smith, and a variety of other books that I have on this topic, including the history of Charles II and the Kings of England. So I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise. And if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.